Okay, so we're reading from Isaiah chapter 6, which you can find on page 691 of the Church Bibles, and we're starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Keep uh, keep that open, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because that's where we're going to be for the next uh, number of uh, minutes while we look at this wonderful passage. Why don't I pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the power with which it speaks. Our prayer now is that through the written word and by the spoken word, we may hear and see the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen. Many of you will remember the name Charles Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship. He was one of my legal heroes. I met him several times in London. He's spoken at All Souls. And uh, when he died in 2012, he was one of the most highly regarded, passionate, thoughtful Christian people in American public life. With 15 honorary doctorates, a Templeton Prize, and the Presidential Citizens Medal. Not to mention almost 30 books behind him. It had not always been so. At 38, he left legal practice to become special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was known as the White House Hatchet Man. And he got caught up in Watergate, of course, as you remember, serving ultimately seven months in prison in 1974 for obstruction of justice. And in the middle of that scandal, in summer 1973, encouraged by a friend, gripped by C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, and longing for some resolution In his own life, he trusted Christ, and he became a Christian. Listen to his own account of that moment. That night I was confronted with my own sin, not just Watergate's dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me, the hidden evil that lives in every human heart. It was painful and I could not escape. I cried out to God and found myself drawn irresistibly into his waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. Well, that story has been told often and well. Less known is is another story because it comes at a later moment in his life when he was in a period of spiritual dryness. 
And if you're in one of those, and you're a Christian, by the way, take heart. More saints than you realize have had life-changing encounters with God in desert places. Another friend suggested to Coulson that he watch some videos by the late R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. And Coulson felt impatient. He thought, this is theologian stuff. This isn't for hard-nosed lawyers. This is from far from the battles we're meant to be fighting. But he agreed. And here's what he said. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of him. Well, there's something gripping, isn't there, about spiritual biography? What is it that keeps someone like Chuck Colson at the top of his game in Christian service for the next 39 years? What was it that made a young, educated, well-connected man like Isaiah stick at being a prophet of God, one of the greatest, through thick and thin for about 40 years, becoming one of the most influential teachers of all time? And here we are in London, 2019, a nice summer summer evening in um, Chester Square reflecting on Isaiah's very words three millennia later. Well, we want to know, don't we, what God does to prepare people, us, to go the distance, to count, to amount to something spiritually. We we want to know that it matters, that it's significant, that it's worth it. In short, we want to know and meet God deep in our beings, don't we? And remarkably, as Coulson and Isaiah's experience suggests, It has something to do with the heart, with getting hold of what Colson called the majesty of God. In a profound, vision-transforming, paradigm-shifting, life-changing sort of way. In short, seeing him as he really is. Well, Isaiah helps us as he shares this vision here in chapter 6. This is reality. Look first at what he saw. Four things to note. One, the throne was occupied. Verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Isaiah sets this experience in history. We can see that in the verse. 740 BC, the king is dead or dying. He's in a leprosy isolation hospital after a largely successful, though ultimately compromised, reign. And Judah is under political pressure. These felt uncertain, even traumatic times. Times in which people had sort of lost their bearings, lost a sense of direction. There was national anxiety about the future. There was insecurity in the present. Know the feeling? The pundits were no doubt saying the throne must soon be filled. And what Isaiah saw that day in the temple was a vision of reality because the throne was occupied. 
It's filled by God himself. Uzziah may be dead or dying, but God is alive. The old king is gone. The real king remains. Psalm 90 verse 2 puts it, he's God from everlasting to everlasting. He was the living God when this world came into existence and he'll be living a million years from now when every puny pot shot against his rule and reality is long forgotten. There's not a single head of state in the world who'll be around in 50 years. In 110 years, this planet will be peopled by 10 billion brand new people. And every one of us, like Uzziah, will be gone. But not God. He's there. He's alive. He's also sovereign. He's sitting on a throne. What Isaiah sees is a king. As the Apostle John records in Revelation 4.2, there is a throne at the very heart of all reality, and there's someone sitting on it. There's no panic there. There's no crisis of authority. There's no omnishambles. God is not at his wit's end about life or events. He sits on a throne, and that throne room is forever occupied. That's a comfort to me. He rules over the good, the bad, and the ugly. And everything is worked out under control. That's immensely comforting. And everything that happens has a meaning and significance, whether we can see it or not at the time. And that throne is the seat of all reality. God's right to rule the world. You know, we we don't give God authority over our lives. He has it, whether we like it or not. And Isaiah learnt that this day. Few things are more humbling or more important for us to get hold of, or that give us a sense of the raw majesty of God as the truth that he is utterly, utterly sovereign. He's the legislature, the executive, the supreme court, the chief exec. The buck stops with him. And that's a great comfort. It steadies us, doesn't it? But it also makes us feel small. And and it's meant to. In Isaiah's writing, from this point on, you never find him talking about himself. From this moment, he moves off center stage. He's not important. He's secondary. He's an instrument, a channel. The throne is occupied. Second, the temple was filled, verse 1. Do you see that? The train of his robe filled the temple. In God's temple, there's only room for God. And God is the only God. And as the Apostle John explained in John 12, 41, what Isaiah saw that day was Jesus' glory. They're one. Isaiah 43, verse 11, apart from me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, verse 6, apart from me there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 21, there is none but me. Isaiah learnt that lesson profoundly here. He saw the God who fills the stage. 750 years before Jesus was to send his disciples out into the world with the gospel, here is Isaiah learning that the God they worship in Jerusalem is God of the whole earth. And the whole earth is full of his glory. 
So God's not only alive, he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, because this throne is high and exalted. Train of this king's robe, like the dress of a bride standing at the chancel, is lavish in splendor. Not remote from the earthly things, no, it's filling the temple. It's immersing itself in the whole, whole earth. End of verse 3, it's filling the whole rich abundance of the created order. As Calvin put it, the world is the theater of God's glory. Daniel 4.35 reminds us he does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand. To be gripped by the omnipotence of God, writes John Piper, is either marvelous because he's for us or terrifying because he is against us. Indifference to his omnipotence simply means we haven't seen it for what it is. The throne is occupied. The temple is filled. Third, the seraphim are worshipping, verses 2 and 3. These six-winged creatures, with feet and eyes and voices and insight, holy in their own right, make their sole appearance in Scripture here. They attend God in his magnificence. The throne room is a busy place, buzzing with worship and service. But do you see their posture? I think we're meant to see this in the text. Even these heavenly consorts, untainted by human sin, have to somehow shield their eyes from a direct gaze on the face of God and not leave their feet exposed in his presence. They hover on two wings, ready for everything God has for them. They blot themselves out of the picture. He is everything. He is all in all. They're models of self-effacement and readiness to serve. They revere God and know themselves completely unworthy to serve him. God is greater than they or we can begin to imagine. And these creatures... And again, I think we're meant to see this in the text. And we're straining at the leash of language here to say that God alone is God. He's, he's not like us, only sort of bigger and nicer. He's in a different category. He's holy, absolutely pure, wholly good, perfectly beautiful, impeccably righteous, just, gracious, and compassionate. And saying it three times... It's not just repetition, it's emphasis. We, you know, we're familiar with that Hebrew doubling up, king of kings, lord of lords. But when Hebrew says something three times, it's what Alec Motir calls a super superlative. Language runs out. Here is the only characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession in this way in the whole Bible. Isaiah calls God holy over 30 times in his writings. He speaks of what that will mean for justice and relationships and everything else. Here's where he learnt it, in the temple on that day. God's holiness is his very nature, his godness, if you like. It's who he is. The two occasions in the Bible 
when we hear what angels are saying in Scripture, are separated by 800 years. It's here and Revelation 4. But they're saying exactly the same thing in both places. So overwhelmed are they by the staggering holiness of God. And presumably they've been saying it ever since, and they are saying it at the moment, right now. Holy, holy, holy. And God's glory, why that's simply his holiness gone public. In another neat phrase of Alec Mateer, holiness is the Lord's hidden glory. Glory is the Lord's omnipresent holiness. So the throne is occupied. The temple is filled. The seraphim are worshipping. And then fourth, the foundations are shaking. Verse 4, do you see that? Friends, that's what happens when God's holiness is recognized, really recognized. He's holy, and since we're decidedly not, any way we look at it is distinctly, inherently unsettling. Because even to declare that holiness has implications. Do you see those? Doors collapse, thresholds shake, access is lost, visibility is choked in smoke. That happens in creation. What does it do to somebody like me? You see, when you see what God is really like, it shakes you to your very foundations and it may even throw you to the ground. You begin to see God as he really is and yourself as you really are. And that can shake you to the core. So from what he saw, I want to turn for a moment to what he experienced. Verse 5. Look at Isaiah's reaction. Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the the King, the Lord Almighty. Ah, We sometimes joke, don't we? Woe is me. And we, we laugh. But there's nothing light in this reaction. He says literally he's unraveling. He is disintegrating. Here's one of the most talented people around. He's a signed-up prophet who'd talked the talk, who'd been born with a silver spoon, and yet just one glimpse of who God really is, and he feels a bit of a wretch in his own eyes, and he feels his life is nowhere, and he pronounces judgment on himself. To sum up his reaction in a word to the greatness and reality of God, it is consternation. Consternation. And that's what happens when you meet, when you really meet God. You begin to get to the truth about yourself. And we're not good at that these days, are we? It's much easier, frankly, to compare yourselves, to compare ourselves to one another. And by that standard, we're probably not bad. But in the presence of God, degrees of sin become somehow irrelevant. It's never them and us, it's always just us. And there's no such thing as a small sin against a holy God. You see, if you've never looked inside and hated yourself, or thought that some aspect of the real you is truly loathsome. Or recognize that inside you're what C.S. Lewis calls somewhere a legion of lusts. Then you're, you're probably not a Christian. And that's not neurotic or morbid. 
It's realistic and healthy as we look at ourselves compared to a holy God. Well, what were Isaiah's unclean lips? We don't know exactly. We're not told. Was it profanity of some sort? I don't know. I smiled when I read recently that Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, apparently really wants to stop biting her nails and swearing. God's name, too holy for Isaiah's contemporaries, even to sound out in Hebrew, is a swear word we hear a hundred times a day. And it hurts, doesn't it? If, if you love that name, it hurts to hear it abused and misused. Or was this problem with unclean lips more likely than perhaps the Christian communicator's problem? Vanity. Feeling a little too pleased with yourself. Wanting to be noticed or appreciated or liked. More concerned with your own reputation than with the glory of God. Christian communicators, believe me, can have very murky motives indeed. And unclean lips. Because lips always express the heart. And that's why they matter. And whatever it is, we don't know, one taste of God's purity made a realist of him. And measured against that, he feels morally and spiritually annihilated. And he knows he's not alone. He's surrounded by people in the same boat, he tells us. And we're in that boat too, three millennia on, because nothing has changed. But it's a good place to be. As our last point demonstrates, what he saw, what he experienced, and finally, thirdly, what he received, verses 6 to 8. Because there's amazing grace here in the heart of an Old Testament crisis 750 years before Jesus. However profound a person's sin may be, grace is greater still. Do you, do you get that hint of rush here? In the seraphim, verse 6, flying in. You know, we talk about people flying in from New York for a meeting or something. There's a sort of sense of rush, of urgency, of importance. It reminded me of that lovely image in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Of the father seeing the returning son and running out to meet him. Have you ever pictured, if I may speak reverently, God at speed? God running? What is it that makes God run? When does God move fast? Answer to meet with human beings. Whenever he hears the words, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and am no longer worthy to be called your child. That's what makes God run. Run to meet us. He means business with us the moment we speak that truth from our hearts. Because, I mean, he knows everything about us anyway. He sees into our hearts. He sees through the cultivated veneer of righteousness. We're utterly transparent to him. He sees the number and depth of our sins. And he still loves us. And one moment of recognition of our rebellion against him and why he's running down the road to hug us and to bring us home. Well, a seraph, verse 6, takes a living coal with tongs from the temple altar and touches Isaiah's lips, the very place of felt need. And he says, verse 7, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
Ah, the relief of knowing that guilt is dealt with. Ah, I long for that for the clients on on which I on whom I, I've been passing sentence. The relief of knowing your guilt can be dealt with. Have you, have you experienced that yet? I hope I hope you have. Because here, in a, in a couple of Old Testament verses, is an example of almost everything that needs to be known about what c- constitutes God's rescue plan for human beings. Here is, in the title of John Murray's little classic book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. There are a couple of things to note, just as we close. First, there's the language of sacrifice, of substitution. Do you see it? Coal comes from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place of meeting. And the altar, you remember, of course, was where the lamb was offered to God for sin, where the fire that symbolized God's judgment consumed the creature, and people felt that somehow their sin had been put away, dealt with, covered. Until the next time. Until that thrilling day. When John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. So there's the language of sacrifice and substitution. There's also the language of personal response. Do you see that? It's very personal. He flew to me. He touched my mouth. And then the three yours of the end of verse 7. Five personal Applications. That's how it is so often in the Bible. One sheep, one coin, one son. God values you and me individually. He values us enough to relate to us personally. And that's why all this matters so much. So there's the language of substitution. There's the language of personal response. And lastly, there's the language of willing service. Verse 8, what are we going to do about all this? What difference does it make? God speaks himself for the very first time in this passage. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, here am I, send me. The forgiven sinner offers himself as a message boy. The man cleansed of the dirty mouth is commissioned as God's spokesman. That's how it is. The gospel overhauls sinful people like us for service to further God's agenda. Whatever the times we live in and however difficult or oppositional things may seem. If you're still with me, just glance on to one final verse. Glance on to Isaiah 57, 7, 4, 5 in the church Bible. 745 I just want you to see this at the end of uh, chapter at the end of uh, verse 15 of Isaiah 57 Where does God live today Above the bright blue sky No Do you see this I live in a high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah learnt that that day in the temple. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, have you reflected 
Will you reflect seriously on the God you're choosing to ignore or sideline? Honestly, given who he is, is that realistic or wise? And if you are a Christian, are you feeling a bit like Charles Colson was, personally dry in a bit of a spiritual desert? Do you need some 2019 revival? Are you anxious about where we're going as a church at Chester Square and the Church of England, in Europe, in politics, in world events? Do you long to have the passion to go the distance in guilt-free, joy-infused Christian service to be useful to God until you drop? I hope you do. Well, there are clues in the passage here. Who we see what we experience, what we receive, who God really is, who we really are, what redeeming grace does for us, really does for us. Someday, you know, the God who will never leave his throne will blow away every competing glory and make his holiness known in unsurpassed splendor to every creature. I may frankly be a pretty feeble believer in a thousand respects. I know I am. But I also know more than anything else, I want to be part of that great story. That's the most important thing in my life. Let's pray for a moment as as we're quiet.